If you have your Bibles, your Bible device, your phone, your iPad, whatever you're reading the Bible on these days, we are in the book of Acts, fifth book in the New Testament. And uh, we are going through the book verse by verse. It's kind of what we do. Uh, We tend to pick a book at a time in the Bible, and then we go through each verse of the book. Uh, We do it for uh, several reasons. One is it allows God to pick the topics on any given weekend, not me, which is a good thing because I would be like a lot of people. You know, a lot of pastors, they have their favorite verses and uh, they would just preach on those. I have some of my favorite verses for sure, but it kind of keeps me from doing that. It it requires us sometimes to um, deal with uncomfortable topics with hard topics, but topics that God has put in Scripture, and so there's kind of some accountability to make sure that I do that, that we do that, and uh, it's generally, I think, a good plan. We're in the the book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts for uh, well over a year. It was written, we told you, uh, last few weeks by Dr. Luke, uh, not a disciple of Jesus, somebody who came along a little bit later and did some research and wrote actually two books, two volumes. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which uh, gave us an account of the things that Jesus began to say and do, as he put it. And then he wrote the book of Acts that discussed the things that Jesus continued to do and continued to teach and say. Uh, So far in this book, we've talked about Luke. We've talked about the book a little bit, introduction. We talked about how Jesus appeared to many, how he instructed the disciples for 40 days on the kingdom. He tells them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Last week we looked at the ascension, and today uh, our passage is chapter 1, verse 12, and what I discovered was, uh, in in kind of researching and preparing, that uh, in most churches when they get to uh, verse 12, uh, they they don't preach it. So sometimes I notice it gets kind of tacked on at the end of the last sermon, just like, here's a little bit of information really quick, just like a little segue to go to the next one, uh, but of course, we're going to do it. We're, we're going to go for it. Now, I can understand why people skip it, because the next story is Pentecost, and Pentecost is like just awesome, and I know you, you just want to get there. We'll get there next week. But there's an issue beginning in chapter 12 before we get to Pentecost, and the issue is this that the disciples have lost a teammate. There were 12 of them, and now there's 11 of them. And, and, and what does that mean? And I would imagine for some of them, they, they weren't exactly sure what it meant. Was, well, could that possibly have been God's plan? We have a little benefit of looking back and knowing how it all worked, but they didn't, they didn't know that back then. All they knew was somebody that had been part of their team for three years, somebody they loved, somebody they cared for, was gone. He was out of the picture. And I would imagine they had to wonder a little bit, but was... So how did this fit in with God's plan? Did God have to come up with a plan B after Judas did what he did? I don't know if you've, you've ever felt like that, that something has happened in your life and, and you think, could this possibly have been part of God's plan? Could, could he have known that this was going to happen and let it happen anyway? I mean, let's face it. People do things that we could not possibly have imagined in advance. Isn't that true? Like sometimes it's one of our kids you know, uh, sometimes maybe it's a spouse. Uh, there are times when I'm sitting down in my office and somebody says, you can't believe what my spouse did. Uh, sometimes I have people say, you can't believe what my mom did, <laughs> what my dad did. They made a decision. They did this thing or that thing. Maybe it's a financial challenge or, or a health challenge that you're going through or it's your job. And you wonder, like, did God, did God know this was going to happen? Did, did God plan for this? Can I, really, can I really count on him? If God lets stuff like this happen... Can he really be trusted? 
Is he, is he really going to show up and take care of this thing? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll, we'll dive in. Father God, I thank you uh, again for bringing us here this morning. And I pray for us now as we open up your word that you will speak to our hearts, that you will teach us what we need to hear this morning, what we need to know in order to follow you as we go from this place today. So be our teacher now, in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So we always have a big idea each weekend for the sermon. I'm gonna kind of give you the big idea right up front. The big idea for the sermon this morning is, is God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. There's one word we often use to kind of summarize all that, and it's the word sovereignty. We'd say that God is sovereign. What I find is it's, it's easy for us to say God is sovereign. It's easy for us to, you know, kind of say, yeah, we believe that God has plans and God accomplishes everything he sets out to do. But a lot of times there's the, so what? Right? So, so what? So what does that mean for me? So I'm going to give you a bonus big idea. You get two this morning. And the second one's kind of a little more for us to think about, and that is this. That life is lived best when we expect God to show up, when we expect God to accomplish his plans. Life is lived best when we don't just know that God accomplishes his plans, but when we trust, when we expect him to do his plan, when we really believe that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, not just that it's a verse we know, but we believe it and we actually expect We expect that God is going to do it. And I guess what I'd say off the top this morning is this. I think a lot of us know it, but I don't know how many of us expect that. So years ago, and it was uh, years ago, we, uh, um, our family, we were going to drive down to Disneyland. I have a lot of family down there, so we're going to drive down there, visit relatives, go to Disneyland, and we had the requisite minivan um, and right, guys, that's when you know you've reached the apex of fatherhood when you have a minivan, and we had three kids. We had Chris and Nick and Abby, and we could put all of them in the van and us, but it wasn't quite enough room for all of us, and so I needed to do that. I needed to buy that glorious thing, right, the Yakima topper, right, that you put, because nothing says I've arrived as a man, like when you have a, you know, a big boat, a cargo carrier on top, and so um, that was back in the days. You guys remember G.I. Joe's? Remember? Yeah, I mean, Man, I miss G.I. Joe's, right? And we had a G.I. Joe's on Mill Plain uh, by 205. And so they carried Yakima top. So I remember going down to G.I. Joe's and we'd saved up our money. And, and uh, so I went down there. And I did, so I remember like they were up on the wall. I don't know why they put them up on the wall, but they were up there. And so I kind of went through there. And, you know, I'm like, I want that one. So the guy says, you know, I'll go get it. He comes out. He carries it out. It's just, it's, it's taller than I am. And he brings it out and just kind of, pops it down, and it won't fit in a cart or anything, and so I got to get it to the other end of the store, so I just kind of pick it up, and I'm running into aisles and all sorts of stuff, and I get over to the checkout line, and there's like 15 people in line, and there's only one checkout person there. It's probably why we don't have G.I. Joe's anymore, and so I'm waiting there, so it's the whole just waiting, and then, oh, one person, step, waiting, and one. So finally, I get up to the front. It's a busy day. There, now there's probably like 15 people in back of me, all waiting in line for this guy, and so I get up there, and he's like, oh, you're going to yak him? I'm like, yeah, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to Disneyland. Oh, that's so cool. Pop my card in, and put my debit card in, and we're kind of waiting, and then she says, oh, sir, I'm sorry. 
um, your, your card's been declined. But it wasn't like, your card's been declined. She's like, declined, right? Like, and every, suddenly, you know, everybody in line is like, oh, they're all listening. Oh, that poor loser, his card was declined, you know? They're like, look, and I'm like breaking out in a sweat. And I'm, so here's the thing. I'm like, I know we have the money we'd been saving for. It was there. I checked it. It was there. I know it was. She says, would you like me to run it again? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. She's, sometimes this happens. So put the card back in, put a number she's like, it's, I'm sorry, sir, it's declined. Do you have another card? I'm like, no, I don't have another card. How much money do you think I have? No, I just, so she says, and everybody's listening, you know, super embarrassing. And she says, well, perhaps you'd like to step out of line and talk to your bank, right? So I'm like, well, okay. So I'm standing off to the side and I got an old, this is a long time ago, an old flip phone, you know, and I'm flipping the phone and trying to hold on to this. And people are like walking through the line, poor sucker, you know, and I'm, so I, I didn't know what to do. So I called my wife. And I said, hey, honey, I'm at G.I. Joe's, and, you know, they won't run the card through, and can you call the bank? Can you look up the, you know, okay, I'll look it up. So she calls the bank, and she says, you know, my husband's down, the card's been declined, can you tell us what's going on? And the lady says, well, yeah, we declined your card because it's kind of a, it's a big charge, and, you know, there usually aren't charges like that in your card. And she says, well, my husband's down buying a Yakima. Oh, okay, that's fine, we'll clear it up. Okay, yeah, he should be able to do it. And then it's kind of quiet for a minute, she says, do you mind if I ask you a question? To my wife, she asked her. I, no, what's up? She was like, well, the, so let me tell you why we flagged it. We flagged it because it was unusual, because it's a big purchase. She's like, you know, pretty much, this card only gets used for one thing, and it's almost every day. And a couple of us were a little concerned. So I just thought, I'd mention it to you, the, the wife. And she's, I was like, well, what? What's it used for? And she says, well, there's a charge almost every day, and it's for a place called Squeeze and Grind. Do, do you know any idea, Mar? It's like, squeeze it. Oh, whoa. Oh, that's a coffee shop. Oh, it's a coffee shop. So you could hear the people in the background. Oh, it's a coffee shop. Oh, okay, great. Anyway, so I, you know, I buy, I, I go, I buy the thing. I go, but here's, here's why I tell you the story. Not just because it's self-defacing, but because for a month after that, I was always afraid to use my card because um, I would be afraid, like, if I, I wait in line, and then what if it got declined again, right? And then that would be embarrassing. I can remember, like, driving by a coffee shop, and if there was a long line of cars, I just wouldn't even go in because I didn't want to go through the whole hassle. I just, the problem was I didn't trust it. I didn't trust that if I used the card, it would work, even though the money was in there. And I tell you that because I feel like sometimes we're like that with God. You know, some, sometimes we have situations where we needed God, and we felt like God didn't show up in the way we expected him to, and now we're a little bit afraid. We're not sure. Does God really answer prayer? We're not sure. Does God really show up? We're not sure. Can I count on God to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? I'm not exactly sure that God always does that. And then it leads to this life where it's very difficult to live for Christ. So I want to talk this morning about three characteristics of an expectant faith. What does it look like when we expect that God will always show up. We find these in the text in the story this morning, and the first thing we're going to notice is this. When we really expect God to show up, when we really have an expectant faith, we pray. So that's what the first thing we notice in the story this morning, beginning in chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 where we pick up the story. Then they, that's the disciples, returned to Jerusalem. So they uh, had seen the ascension, and now they're heading back to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So it's probably about two-thirds of a mile. Not going to take them particularly long, but they've just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. And I, you can imagine the discussion on the way back. They might 
have been, you know, thinking back about the, remember the resurrection? And remember when, when the tomb was empty and, you know, they're like telling stories like we do when we experience things together. Remember when we were in the room and the doors were locked and Jesus walked through and, you know, maybe remember the teaching and remember the commission and, and the ascension, right? Remember, he's, uh, he sends and he, he's gone and then the, the angels, like there's angels and they're like, you know, stop looking up and go get, you know, go get out there and get going. But, but now they're walking back to Jerusalem and they're thinking, now what, right? What do we do? What do we do now? Verse 13. And when they had entered, that is Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, uh, and the son of James. So they're going to the, the upper room. This is a large upstairs space common in homes in those days. This is a large one. Um, some speculate it's the same upper room that Jesus uh, had the Last Supper with the disciples in. It doesn't have to be, but it, it might be. It's in a big home. We know there's 120 people there. There's the 11 apostles, right? Because one of them is missing now. Uh, Jesus' mother, uh, his mother's there. It's the last mention of her in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus' brothers are there. These are guys that didn't believe in Jesus before the resurrection. Mary Magdalene's there, Susanna's there, Joanna's there, Mary of Bethany's there, Martha's there, she's probably cooking lunch, and, uh, and then maybe the 70 are there. We're not really sure. But they all come together, they gather together, and they stay together because of one thing. There's one thing that ties it together, and that is they have an expectation. And the expectation is that God is going to show up in the person of the Holy Spirit. They are expecting him to show up. N.T. Wright in uh, his commentary on Acts says this, a big problem for believers today is we don't truly expect the Holy Spirit to come among us in power. We lack a biblically-based expectancy. And when we don't expect God to show up, when we don't expect God to work, when we don't expect that God will work all things for the good of those who love him, it makes it difficult to follow Jesus, doesn't it? When it's just up to us and our power, and I think a lot of times when it feels hard to follow Jesus, it's usually a clue that we may not be expecting God to show up. And when we don't, it makes it hard. When I first came to Gateway like a, a quarter of a century ago, um, I had only preached a couple of times. And I can remember first coming here and, and preaching was such a stressful, difficult thing, given that I hadn't done it much. And so all week long, I would just feel the, the responsibility to write a sermon that was, you know, that was good, that it, that it would be theologically sound, um, just the research, the writing. That, you know, I, I felt like I had to have just the perfect illustrations, and I'd have to make you laugh and make you cry and make you repent and do all the things you didn't want to do. And, just had to, and then I had to really wrap it up you know, with a zinger, and everybody would just go like, wow. And, and I can remember just, it was such a stressful thing. Writing a sermon was stressful. Every day of the week was stressful. Preaching, it was stressful. Preaching was so stressful. Those were in the days when we were in the old building, and I had an office. My office had actually been, it used to be the nursery. Then it was my office, and it, so it had a little private bathroom, which came in very handy because I was often, uh, on my knees before the toilet uh, on Sunday mornings. I was so nervous. I was such a mess. And I can remember at one point realizing that I will never be good enough to do this, that I will never be smart enough, 
that I'll never be spiritual enough, that I'll never be wise enough, that I'll never be funny enough or any of that stuff. And I realized I don't have to be. I only have to do my best, and that's all I can do. But I need to trust the Holy Spirit. I need to expect. And what I realized was I wasn't really expecting God to show up, and so I felt like it was all up to me. We do that in a lot of areas of life, don't we? We take it upon ourselves. We don't really expect God to show up. But once I, once I kind of turned that corner and realized that I can trust God to show up, it changed everything. It changed the, the sermon preparation. It was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was engaging. It even made being up here on the weekends a lot of fun for me because I realized this isn't up to me. I can only do the best I can do. I can't speak to hearts and change hearts and change lives anyways. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And so I began to, to trust God to do that. It changed everything. It drove me to my knees and to prayer like never before because I started to realize if I ask God for things, he will always do the good and perfect thing. And I began to enjoy this. And I think it's true for so many areas of life. There are things God gave us. There are things that God wants us to enjoy. But we don't enjoy them because we feel like it's all up to us and we don't really trust God to show up. How would your life change if you really expected God to show up in your home? If you expected him to show up in your marriage, in your relationships? If you, you know, going to work tomorrow, whatever that is, and you really expected that God is going to show up there or at school or, or in here or in your struggles or your finances, what would that look like? In verse 14, it tells us what it looked like for them. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It says literally in the Greek, it says they were devoting themselves to the prayer. In other words, the idea is there were set times that they would get together every day, and they would all come together, and they would pray together, and it says they were praying in one accord or of, of, of one heart, of one mind, which is really interesting when you think about the fact that these are the same 11 guys who argued over which one of them was the greatest. These are the same men who just, you know, not too long beforehand refused to watch, uh, wash each other's feet out of pride. The brothers of Jesus were there who just months earlier thought that Jesus was literally crazy, that he was out of his mind. And now here they are believing these are women, some who are rich, some who are poor, some who are godly, some who are sinners. And all of them are together and they're praying as one. There's one heart and one mind. And again, remember the setting here as they get together. Jesus has gone up into heaven. Judas is out. They've been handed this big mission to take the gospel to the whole world. There's, there's no Holy Spirit yet. And what's their instinct? Their instinct is while they wait, they're going to pray. So they were told to wait, but they decide we're going to pray. It made me think about how we're not really instinctually like that, are we? For the most part, it's, for most of us, it's, our instinct isn't when we have to wait to pray. I'd say most of the time when my instinct is when I have to wait, I get caught up on texts, you know? I make sure I have my phone with me everywhere I go. I don't go anywhere without my iPad. If I have to wait, you know, do a little Facebook. Uh, I take a book with me. I have a book in the, driver, in the passenger seat, in my car, wherever I go, because I never know where I might get stuck and have to wait for two minutes or five minutes or something. And so my instinct is to break out the book and, and to read it. But what if, what if every time you had to wait, you prayed? Right? What if you prayed? What if when you were in traffic, you prayed? 
What if when you're in the checkout line at G.I. Joe's and you're waiting for that guy whose card gets declined, you know, and you're, what if you prayed? What if you prayed when you're in the drive-thru for coffee? What if, what, what if you prayed while you're waiting, waiting to graduate, right? Waiting for a job, waiting for a better job, waiting to feel better, waiting to get over cold, waiting for a date to get married or have kids. What if we prayed? What if we prayed when we did that? Why would we do that? Well, I think our prayer life reveals our expectation. When we expect Jesus to answer our prayers, when we expect that he is the kind of God who does that, when we believe that Jesus is alive and that he's in charge and that he's sovereign and that he gives answers, when we believe that, it draws us to prayer, it draws us to our knees. These early believers, they really expected that God would show up and that God would work and it drove them to prayer. But there's a second thing that we see, and that is when we have an expectant faith, when we don't just know it up here, but when we really believe that God is going to show up, that he's in charge, it, it creates in us this desire to proclaim his sovereignty even in the midst of hard times. So here's what I mean. Some of the disciples had to be struggling. They had to be wondering about Judas. What did it mean? What did his defection, how did that fit into to God's plan? In verse 15, we pick up the story. It says, now in those days, that is when they were waiting, when they were praying in the upper room, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he says, by the way, God knew about this, and you can find it in the Old Testament, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So Peter, who was the former bumbling disciple, in fact, who not too long beforehand had denied even knowing Jesus, stands up, and I I would just say he kind of addresses the elephant in the room. What about Judas? What does it mean? What happened there? And what he says is, I was reading through the Psalms, and I noticed in the Psalms that there were some predictions about, guess what? About this very thing we're wondering about. It tells that there was someone who would betray God's son, who would betray Jesus, and that this person would meet a quick demise, and his property that he owned would become desolate, that is, no one would dwell in it, and that another person would take his office. Now, Going on in this passage, Luke gives us a little background information, a a bit of an aside, before he continues to say what Peter said. Luke interjects here, he says, now this man, he's speaking of, of Judas, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Woo, that's awesome. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, the field of blood. So he's just giving us a little background here. In fact, what we notice is that uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account of what happened to Judas were a little bit different, so theologians have worked through that, and generally what you get kind of is a picture that goes something like this, that you have Judas, who's a, a disciple of Jesus, he's with Jesus for three years, eventually he is paid 30 pieces of silver to betray 
Jesus to deliver him over to the religious leaders. His intention was to uh, buy a piece of real estate. He was going to use the money to invest, apparently in land, but he's so overcome with guilt that he gives the money back to the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders don't want the money because it's blood money. Heaven forbid, they, they pay it, but they wouldn't take it back, of course. And so they go out and they buy a field and they buy it in Judas's name. And this is their way of kind of washing their hands of the situation. It becomes known as a field of blood. And then Judas, out of guilt hangs himself. He attempts to commit suicide. One theory is he, he, he tries to commit suicide. It doesn't, he, he botches it. He falls down on some rocks. Bowels gush out. The end of the story for him. The disciples, though, are struggling because Judas is their friend. Judas was their, their teammate. I would expect that they probably cared very much about Judas. But it was, it was more than that. It was some of the things that Jesus had said earlier. In Matthew 19, for instance, Jesus said to the disciples, and those who were there, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit, and notice this, on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's very specific about this, but there's a problem. Jesus said there would be 12 of them, and there's only 11 of them. They're missing someone. So what, what do they do? In John 6, in fact, it's interesting, Jesus had said to those he was teaching, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So Jesus knew all this. He knew what Judas would do. What's astounding, though, is that Judas would have three years with Jesus in this kind of inner circle exclusive relationship. So he gets to hear things. He gets to hear the Sermon on the Mount from the front row. You know, he's a, they get to go talk about it and work it through late nights, working through the parables because they often didn't understand them. So they talk about them. He gets to see Jesus walk in water. He got to see him feed thousands of people and turn water into wine. But John 12 tells us something interesting, that Judas was the treasurer for the group. And he had been stealing money all along, right under Jesus' nose. And scholars, you know, tell us basically that they think what Judas believed about Jesus was that he would lead a a new kind of of revolt, that he probably thought of Jesus more as as a political military leader than a spiritual leader. And it was believed that that he would help Israel gain their independence from Rome, and that Jesus would be a new king. And that would mean power and positions of authority and wealth for the 12 disciples. So Judas is in it for what he can get out of it. But when it becomes obvious that Jesus has another agenda, that in fact he's going to go another route, Judas decides to cut his losses and make some money if he can. And so he betrays Jesus and the opportunity to make a few dollars. In verse 25, it tells us, About him, it says, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So here's what Peter's saying. God knew what Judas would do. And he used Judas's evil intent to accomplish his own good purposes. God knew what he would do. Jesus chose him for a reason. This would lead to the betrayal. This would lead to the arrest. This would lead to the cross and our salvation God didn't make Judas do it, but God used it 
Judas made his choice, and Judas faced his judgment for what he did. In fact, I would mention just not in your notes, but a, a couple of thoughts about this as we think about what happens here. The first is this. It makes me think that God will not be mocked. And I say that because sometimes it appears that people mock Jesus for a time. And it might have felt like Judas was mocking Jesus by stealing money from the ministry. But in the grand scheme of things, it didn't go on for long. It was three years. But, but God has the power and the right to judge people. And sometimes God judges people immediately. This, in fact, we're going to see several examples of people being judged seemingly immediately for things that they have done. And this is something that God has the right to do. But most of the time, we know God to be what we would call patient and, and gracious and he gives people time to repent, even if they won't. And I think we're probably very grateful for that, aren't we? I mean, sometimes we live in two worlds. We would love to see other people judge for their sin immediately. We just hope God doesn't do that with us, right? I mean, when you go from here today and you're probably not hoping, well, you know, if I sin this afternoon, I hope God just says that's it. You know, like, most of us want God to be gracious and patient, just not always with other people. And so we need to be very careful, I think, of interpreting the untimely deaths of other people to the immediate judgment of God. It may be or it may not be. That's for God to decide. The second thing is this, that we need to be careful not to envy what often look like successful sinners. So for a time, for three years, it might have looked like Judas was getting away with it, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen someone who, who, who was a cheater, you know, and they seem to be successful, Right? Does, how do you feel about that when you know somebody is a liar and it, they seem to be making money off it or they, or they destroy people on their way to the top of a company and it, it looks like from where you sit, it's working and, and it doesn't look like they're facing any judgment and it looks like they're getting away with it. What we need to remember is that we can, just, we can allow God to be God and deal with injustice. We don't have to worry about it. We can trust him to deal with it. We don't need to envy sinners because in the end, everyone's sin is dealt with, either through the cross of Christ or as we stand before God in judgment for our own sins and unbelief. And there's a third thing, though, and that is this, that, that nothing takes God by surprise, nothing. So again, back in our passage, in verse 20, here's what Peter says. He says, here's what I, I discovered, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his, speaking of Judas, may his camp, or his property, his real estate, become desolate. That is that nobody would live there. And let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. In other words, Judas was foretold in the Old Testament because we have a God who is sovereign. We have a God who always accomplishes his purposes. We have a God who knows the evil intentions of people and the choices they will make. And we have a God who will sovereignly take even the evil intentions of people and use them to accomplish his own good and perfect plans. And the best example of that is the crucifixion. People who meant harm. People who meant to harm Jesus. We think about the betrayal kiss of Judas. We think about the arrest, the way the soldiers treated Jesus. We think about the agony of crucifixion. And yet God used all of that, didn't he? He used all of that to bring about the greatest blessing we know. And that is our salvation. And, and the good news is this. When you, when you look at the chaos in your own life, when you look at the suffering, when you think about the heartache, and when, when you wake up in the morning and life really isn't what 
you dreamed it might be. The temptation sometimes is to think, did God really have this planned? Did something go sideways? Does God have a plan B? Does God really work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Does he really do that? Or does he do it for other people but not me? See, here's what Peter knows. God is sovereign. God is always in control. God always accomplishes his perfect plans. And what are some of his perfect plans? That he works all things together. That's what God does. And our best life is lived when we believe it and when we expect it. We expect God to do what he said he will do. And that's my question for you. Do do you expect that? Do you expect God to do good things in your life? Do you expect it? Or are you like, well, yeah, I I mean, I think God's going to do it for him or for her. But do you expect it for you? Even in the midst of evil things that people do around you, do you still expect that God will be able to redeem that and use that? How about when you do dumb things, right, and they bring about terrible results, and do you believe that God can even redeem those things? And see, when you think about it, this really shapes our outlook in life, doesn't it? When we believe and when we expect God to show up, it allows us to have a grateful attitude. It allows us to to, to have a peaceful attitude. But when we don't, it creates stress and anxiety and, and, and complaining. And here's the third thing I want to mention, the last thing, and that is this. When we have an expectant faith as the disciples had, we will pursue God's direction, God's lead. That's what happens here. Again, look in verse 17. Speaking about Judas, Peter says, for he was numbered among us. He's one of the 12 and was allotted his share in the ministry. So Jesus had said there would be 12 disciples who sat on 12 thrones. And Peter knows There will be no empty thrones in heaven. Therefore, a replacement for Judas must be chosen. So they sit down and they decide, how will we choose who this person will be? It tells us in verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So, a couple of qualifications. It had to be somebody who was with them from John's baptism to the ascension, and it had to be someone who was a witness to the resurrection. And so, when they put it all down together, they get two men. There are two possibilities that they have in verse 23. And they put forward two names. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So there's, there's two people who are qualified. They're both, as far as we know, equally qualified. They can't choose between the two, but they have two people. So they have Joseph, which I don't know. I think one of the things going against him is they don't know what to call him. He's Joseph, he's Barsabbas, he's Justice, right? Too many nicknames. And then there's Matthias, which but the only problem with him is, as our youth pastor points out, he didn't spell his name right. So, right, they both have things going against them. So how would they decide? How would they decide which one of them would be? Well, guess what? These are people who expect God to lead. They expect God to show up. So what do they do? They do what people do when they expect God to lead. They pray. That's what you do. And they prayed. And they said, and the prayer was great. It just oozes with this whole thing, right? You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. You are the God who knows hearts. We don't know hearts. We don't know where people are coming from. We don't know what people are thinking, but you do, God. You are right? So show us which one of these two you have chosen. I just love the, the expectation is, 
I don't know, when you pray and ask God for wisdom, he will answer you. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? And so they pray. I, why do they pray? Because there is an expectation. These people expect God to answer their prayers. They believe that God knows hearts and we don't. And so they pray. They go to God. And then they do something very interesting. And then they cast lots for them. And a lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So they do what we call drawing lots. This is a kind of an Old Testament, time-honored way for people pursuing God's will at times when they're really not sure what to do. They'll pray. And then it usually involved like writing the names uh, on uh, stones or shards of, of pottery. And they would put them in a bag and they'd shake it. And the name that came out, that was the person that they would choose. Now, Something to remember is this. This is a very unique time in New Testament post-commission history. Just, you know, a few days here, but Jesus is not there and the Holy Spirit is not there. So I love what they do. What do they do? Well, they go where they know they can find God, to the Word and to prayer. What's interesting is after Pentecost, the idea of drawing lots is never mentioned again because they don't need to, right? Because they have the Holy Spirit, so, and I just pastorally, a little advice here, I would not advise drawing lots for picking a spouse, you know, or a job or a major in college. Just pray and expect God to speak to you through the Holy Spirit. But here's the takeaway. Okay? Our God is a God who gets his way. He always accomplishes his plans. Or as theologians would say, nothing can frustrate the plans of God. The mission that God has given us that we looked at last week will be accomplished. He will build his church and he will work all things for our good. He will do it because he's promised to do it. The only real question is, do you expect it? I wouldn't even ask you if you believe it because I think it's just, right, it's what we do. Well, of course we believe it, right? But do you expect it? Do you expect God to do these things? Do you live expectantly? Is another way to put it. To live expectantly means we don't have to live in fear of the unexpected, right? Just imagine, I don't want to freak you out, but just, you know, imagine all the unexpected things that could happen this afternoon. Not on your radar at all. Almost anything could happen, right? Now I just made your day, right? But here's the point. There's all sorts of life, things in life we face that are unexpected, but we don't have to be in fear of those things. We don't have to live in fear of the things we can't control, which is just about everything for the most part except our own attitude. We don't have to live in fear of life's inevitable changes. I just celebrated a birthday recently. I was reminded that things change. There's no going back, you know, and some people fear the future. They fear growing up or they fear growing old. There's nothing to fear about these things. We don't have to live in fear of a changing society, of, of people who are enemies. Even, we don't even have to live in fear of our own incompetency and the problems that we create. Instead, we can pray with great expectation because we expect that we have a God who hears our prayers and will answer our prayers with his good and perfect will. We can proclaim in every situation, not just when it's over, but at the beginning of hard things and in the middle of hard things, we can proclaim that God is sovereign and that God in his sovereignty is good and that we trust him 
so we can tell our family when things are tough. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I trust God. I expect him to show up, and God is good all the time. We can tell that to our friends, and we can tell it to ourselves. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves, don't we, that God is good, right? And we need to remind ourselves. We need to expect that. We need to expect God to work. And the last thing is this. We pursue God's direction and his leading because we expect him to show up and to lead. So let me ask you this again. How would you live differently today if you really expected God to show up? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's difficult. Or, but, but how would you pursue that relationship today if you expected that God was gonna show up and do the good thing? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your job. Maybe your attitude towards going to work tomorrow is not... Um, an expectant attitude when it comes to what God might do. Maybe it's school, right? What are, you, what are you expecting in your job, expecting in school? Maybe it's some challenge, some impossibility situation you're facing. Maybe it's your dating life or some sinful habit or, or stress. I want to close with this passage, one of my favorite, and I just thought of it all week as I was kind of working my way through this because I think it speaks into this in so many ways. Philippians 4, 4. Notice what it says here. Rejoice in the Lord always. So let me just start off by saying this. It's really hard to rejoice in the Lord always if you don't have an expectant faith. But when you expect God to be sovereign, when you expect God to accomplish his good and perfect plans, when you expect that God will work all things together for the good, including in your life, when you expect it, you can live a rejoicing life, can't you? There's the expectation. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, or some translations say, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. Have you noticed that it's hard to have a gentle, kind, peaceful spirit when you are stressed out? You notice that? Have you noticed how in one, maybe there's a, something over here and it's stressing you out. It's hard. It just seems to infect your attitude and how you treat everyone. Isn't that true? How could you live a gentle life, even in the midst of a difficult circumstance. How could you do that? Because you expect God to show up. In fact, notice what he says. The Lord is at hand, right? That's the, God is at hand. God is here. God is working. Do you believe that? And then he says this, do not be anxious about anything. Well, that's good. How could you not be anxious about anything? Well, you'd have to believe, wouldn't you? You would pretty much have to believe that God is a good, sovereign God. Nothing frustrates his plan. And again, I know I said it 50 times already, but God works all things together for the good. But when you believe that, then you don't have to be anxious about anything, but in everything by what? Yeah, because that's what expecting people do. They trust God, so they go to God. They pray to God. They're like, God, this is, this is hard, but this is going to be awesome. I know you're going to show up by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, and let your request be made known to God. And then notice this, and the peace of God. What do you get? And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding or comprehension. It doesn't make sense in our world. We'll guard your hearts, and we'll guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't that be great to have a heart and mind that was guarded, that was protected, that was at peace? So let me ask you this question. Where do you need to start expecting? It's not just believing intellectually, but where do you need to start expecting our sovereign and good God to show up, to show up? I was thinking about this this morning. It reminded me of the, remember the story 
father comes to Jesus with his child to be healed. And he says, you know, Jesus, if you can, would you heal him? Remember, Jesus says, if I can, right? All things are possible, right? With God. And, and then what does the man, what does the father reply? Do you remember what he replies? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I think he's a lot like most of us, right? Most of us say, I believe. I believe God is sovereign. I believe God is good. But there's a little, there's a little bit of unbelief too, isn't there? There's a little bit of, of doubt. So I think it's good to pray. God, I believe. That's why we're here. Help my unbelief. Help me to expect that you will be the God that you say that you are. Let me pray for us.